Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through our doctrinal statement of faith, which we have chosen the London Second, the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 as our statement of faith. So we're working through our doctrines. We have uh, just begun again to uh, go through the whole thing. We are in chapter one, which is of the scriptures. Last week was our uh, first week, so this week we're picking back up where we left off. And um, obviously, um, as we go through the confession, there we're covering word for word everything that's in the confession, uh, or at least phrase by phrase. However, uh, there are things that come up as a result um, of covering these various doctrines that we expound on a little bit and expand a little bit um, so that we can cover them as is appropriate. And the scripture certainly is one of those sections where that makes sense. In other words, um, you know, we just read last week uh, that paragraph that talks about what the canon of scripture is, what the uh, books of the Bible are. And uh, there's not any other explanation there. So we talked a little bit about the canon of Scripture, and uh, that's where we actually were, were working. We're working our way through that part uh, in, off of paragraph two. And uh, where we left off last week was talking about um, some of the modern attempt to discredit the Scripture, and particularly to uh, suggest that there are other books of the Bible that um, are should have been part of the scripture and were not. Uh, I read a quote last week from uh, Dan Brown in uh, The Da Vinci Code, which of course is a very popular book and movie. And, uh, um, and of course, interesting because not only because uh, it's a thriller, but interesting because it is all about secret information. And, uh, and obviously, and this is one of the difficulties, you know, I don't know if you remember, there's a movie called National Treasure and National Treasure 2. And uh, those two movies are about secrets that the founding fathers had in the first one, and the second one is Civil War. And these are interesting movies to us. Because, as always, history is a little cloudy. It's a little murky. You know, we have information about it, but we don't have as clear a picture as we do about our own lives today. And frankly, can we admit this? We don't have a very clear picture about what's going on today, period, do we? I mean, we like to think we do, but we don't. We don't. And if, and if your number one place to go to for that information is the Internet, be careful. Be careful because everything on the Internet is written with a bias. How do I know that? I'm biased. So are you. So are you. There is nobody that's not biased. So everything else. So you look at a Google search, it's biased. In fact, manipulated biased. Facebook, manipulated. Manipulated. Why? To make you think a certain way. So when you see people like Dan Brown write the Da Vinci Code, and brings into question the validity of the Scriptures as we recognize the Scriptures, can you see how that might be because there's a bias? In other words, if you can't trust the Bible to be God's Word, then what good is it? You don't have to live by it. You don't have to acknowledge it. You don't have to see anything about it because it's all just made up anyway. It's all something that somebody put together because they wanted to control people. That's his suggestion, that Constantine did this. So today, uh, we're going to pick back up right after that, where we, we're going to talk about uh, canon criticism. All right, so, well, this is the end of that Dan Brown quote right here, and uh, talked about that. He, he, you know, here's what he suggests. These are the pages, by the way, where he makes these statements. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Absolutely false. 
Like, there is absolutely zero history behind that statement. Don't forget the Da Vinci Code is a work of fiction. People tend to forget that. The Da Vinci Code is not supposed to be a historical narrative. It is a work of fiction. And what he suggests is, is that there was this huge cover-up thing that happened where Constantine took all the actual books of the Scripture, picked the ones that he liked, and that's what became the, the Scripture. And how do you know it? Well, because the Da Vinci Code tells us that. If we could just figure out the code to unlock the puzzle, to get to the list, we'd know what truly is supposed to be in the Scripture. See a problem there? Yeah. The problem is, is it's completely fabricated. That's the problem. All right. So, as more evidence is discovered proving that Textus Receptus matches quotes from early church fathers and the Alexandrian texts do not, the attacks are shifting to questioning the books themselves. These new attacks are called canon criticism. Now, all right. Who, let me just ask this question. I think I know the answer. I, I know the answer. But who ever took the U.S. Constitution class from me? Who sat in the U.S. Constitution class? You reluctantly raise your hands, Stu? What's up with that? <laughs> okay, that's better. Uh, okay, so um, when you took that class, I hope, that you had this sense that you get so far into it and you start reading through how things work together and all of a sudden it kind of clicks. You kind of see all of a sudden that, man, all the gears mesh. This makes sense why they did it this way. It was on purpose. It wasn't an accident. And once you see that, it makes the whole of the Constitution much more understandable because you can see how these things all had to work together. Well, when we look at the attacks on the Scriptures, it is the same. There has been a concerted effort since the Scriptures were written to discredit the Scriptures. Is this a surprise to us? It shouldn't be. What is Satan's temptation in the very beginning? Hath God said? This is what he says to Eve in the Garden of Eden before she takes a bite of the apple. We're not to eat of that tree, nor to touch it. Hmm. What does Satan say? Hath God said? He questions it right off the bat, which, by the way, the command to Adam in the Scripture is you shouldn't eat of it. Didn't say you shouldn't touch it. Eve says, can't eat it nor touch it. And Satan says, has God said that? Did he say that? He's questioning God's word in the very beginning. We don't have that much evidence of God's words to Adam and to Eve. We do know some things that he said. It is clearly in Scripture. Is that everything that he said? Well, Probably not. You would think that there might have been a few questions that Adam had. Name all the animals, tend the garden. Where do I find the tools? You know, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever it is, you understand what I'm saying? Like, do you want me to do start like alphabetically, or how do you, you know? <laughs> I don't know. He might have had some questions. He may not have. With his, at that point, sinless mind, he may have comprehended exactly what God wanted him to do right away. We don't know that. But here's what we do know. The words that are recorded in Scripture are not very many. God gives some explicit commands of what to do. One thing prohibited. Don't eat of the tree of good and evil. Satan begins tempting man and really tempting man to commit the first sin, Eve and Adam, with questioning his word. There is no change in his tactics. The only change in his tactics today are how he addresses those who have accepted God's word and how he keeps those from accepting God's word that haven't yet. 
you see this? So in other words, he's gotten more strategic in his view of how to do it. But his primary focus is, has been, and will be attacking God's word. Attacking God's word. Is Jesus Christ really Jesus? Well, he was just a man. This is attacking God's word. You see, you see that? Anything you think of, when we have God's word that tells us one thing, and man is suggesting that that's incorrect, that there's actually another way to look at this, that is attacking God's word. Does this make sense? That's attacking God's word. As we look through the canon and the controversies that happened with the early church, and then after that with Scripture, you are going to see, I hope, it will click in your mind, this direct and methodical attack on the validity of God's word. And this is where we're talking about the Alexandrian texts. Okay? We're going to get to that. It's kind of... It's the chicken and the egg thing to some extent, although we know what the answer is, right? It's the chickens, not the egg. Anyway, it's, it's what comes first, right? So do we explain what the Alexandrian texts are first and then explain everything else, or do we just mention the Alexandrian texts and then get into the Alexandrian texts? We're going to do it that way. So I'm mentioning it. I mentioned it last week a couple times. I'm mentioning it again here. There is a distinct difference. Now, here, let me just clarify this to make it real clear because we are going to get to this, but not this week. There are two primary, primary, not exact, two primary translations of the scripture in Greek. Now when I say in Greek and I say translation, you might think, I thought English is a translation from Greek. That is correct. But the question is, which Greek source do they use? Which Greek source do they use? And there are two. Commonly today, commonly, <laughs> all this stuff, just think big picture, not critical picture, is Textus Receptus and majority text. Now, the problem is, is that there's overlap. So depending on who you talk to, and depending on who you read, and depending on what time period you looked at, Textus Receptus was called majority text. There was a lot more text that supported, te- there still is a lot more text that support Texas Receptus. But they have taken exactly like the Founding Fathers and the press at the time did and said the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, they've done the same thing with Texas Receptus and a majority text. The majority of the text that's been found matches the Texas Receptus. The minority mass- match the Alexandrian text. But the minority are longer. So what are we going to call them? Majority text. Why? It sounds more official, doesn't it? It does. That's the Alexandrian text today. That's what they're considered. The Alexandrian texts are considered the majority text. Texas Receptus isn't. Now, what Bible do you have? Well, whatever Bible you have, it is based on either the Texas Receptus or the majority text. It's one of the two. So it's either the Texas Receptus or it's the Alexandrian text. Now, let me just give you a, I'm, I'm way ahead of the, you know, I'm not stealing my own thunder here because it's not going to be this week, but let me just make sure that you, I'm going to give you the kind of the big picture of what's going to happen when we get to this part. The Texas Receptus is the text that the church has used since Christ. Still in use today. The majority text was not discovered until the 1800s. So it existed up to about 400 in a few copies 
was marked heretical, hidden, or destroyed. And then it resurfaced in the 1800s. So in other words, for about 1,300 years, Christ's church did not have that text. Now that alone is a reason to say that text is questionable. Would Christ keep his word from the church for 1,300 years in its entirety? And meanings are changed. Verses are missing. A lot of words are changed. We're going to go through some comparisons on some of the different translations so you'll see how many things are attacked. And look, if you take a book that doesn't have any of the books of the Bible that we recognize, and you say, this is the Bible. Let's say like the Book of Mormon. All right, so if you take that and you say, this is the Bible, those other books are not the Bible. Do you think you're going to sway Christians to your side? You're really not going to sway Christians. Unbelievers, you might convince them that this is what the truth is and not the Bible that we recognize. You might convince them. But Christians are not going to just believe, oh, yeah, all that was wrong for 2,000 years? Yeah, that other book. Yeah, that's, a, that's the one. You see what I'm saying? In other words, you're not going to make a good inroad with twisting the reality of the Scriptures unless you twist it slightly. If you change it completely, it's going to be hard to convince people. But if you change it slightly, you're going to have an easier inroad. You're going to be able to undermine. Now, this is the problem with all kinds of areas, and we're going to touch on one of them today, which is the Septuagint. We're going to talk about that. Where did the Septuagint come from? When did it actually exist? Very interesting question. We'll touch on that today when we talk about the Apocrypha, which was in the Septuagint. We'll talk about that. All right. So, these, text, these attacks today have now been deemed canon criticism. Why? That sounds very scholarly, right? Canon criticism. Now, let's, let's look at this for a second, because we've already talked about this. That one of the ways that the, we know the canon was truly the word of God was its acceptance by the church. In fact, if you recall, one of the early, uh, fr- uh, one of the early requirements that the church had for whether a book should be considered part of the canon, there was four things, and one of them was acceptance by the church. Almost universal acceptance by the church. Not universal, almost universal acceptance. Now, what books were in question on this? Second and third John. Jude, a number. They were in question because they, they were not accepted by every church, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, accepted by all. Acts, Romans, accepted by all. Most of Paul's works, accepted by all. There were a few books that were questionable, so they came up with a criteria to determine what should be used. This is the last time that the canon was actually questioned. You only have to get out to about the 5th century to see the church absolutely acknowledging no more questions about which books are in the New Testament. Ending with Revelation. There were no more considered after that by the church. Not until we see the Council of Trent by the Roman Catholic Church who approves what they call Deuterocanon. Talked about that last week. What is Deuterocanon? Deuterocanon is second canon. Deutero is second. Second canon. And they put the Apocrypha in that category. So was it the canon of Scripture? It's the second canon of Scripture. What exactly does that mean? It's close, but not 100%. <laughs> How could it be canon then? At any rate. So today, there has been this renewed idea. Why? Because once you get to the Alexandrian text being published, initially by Westcott and Horde, 
but then other hort, but other ones after that, you begin to see this consistent effort made to question the Texas Receptus and to try to eliminate it as being considered valid. So, what does canon criticism mean? All right, here's the methods for canon criticism. This is the exact method that canon criticism uses today. Attack the books of the canon as fraudulent. Now, this is where Dan Brown comes specifically into this picture, right? He is part of the canon criticism movement. He's self-proclaimed as part of this movement. What do they do? They try to attack the books of the canon as fraudulent. They insist on an open canon. What does that mean? Remember that quote I read last week? The word of God is not the word of God until it becomes the word of God and means something to you. Absolutely incorrect and false. It doesn't matter if it means something to you. It's still the word of God. Can we agree with that? To recommend discarded Gnostic books or spurious pseudonymous books to the canon. So, Gospel of Thomas, all kinds of different books. To recommend that these be part of the canon, they should be considered part of the canon as well. Why? Because they were, this is what they're gone to now, they were discarded by Constantine and should have been included. They were always included by the early church. Absolutely false. Look, you can get the books of the writings of the anti-Nicene fathers. That's before the Council of Nicaea. You can get the books of the Nicene Fathers, which are the ones after the Council of Nicaea. Which, by the way, if you recall this from our little history lesson, Nicaea was the council that was called by Constantine to deal with Arius. Remember this? Arius, the Arian heresy, who Arius said that Jesus was not God. He was divine, but he was not God. He wasn't equal with God. He was created by God. That whole whole, uh, heresy was what Constantine called the Council of Nicaea from. We have the writings of the church fathers prior and after that, and they're not even questioned. There's not even a question of whether or not these are the actual writings of the church fathers. They're accepted everywhere. They don't write about any of these other books. None of them. There's there's nothing. So you can't go back and say, well, such and such had this, or such and such had this. No, no. Only heretical church fathers, like Origen, the leader of the group, Origen. We're going to talk about him, too. To claim fraudulent additions and inserts were put into the text. So this is one of the ways that the text is, is criticized today. What? Oh, that didn't say this. That didn't say that. Why would you want to do that? Why would you say that additions were added? Because you want it to be subtracted. Are you? <laughs> that wasn't a trick question. Because you want that to be subtracted. In other words, if you could take things out of the Scripture, you can change doctrine. Right? If you can take things out, say this shouldn't be there, shouldn't be there, shouldn't be there, shouldn't be there, you can take things out. Like, for instance, the consistent move in the majority text to remove the blood of Christ. Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Or to remove Christ as being equal with God and being God. Over and over again. You see all these references, you'll see them. I'm going to show them to you. These references to Christ and references that were changed to, to talk about Joseph, his father, instead of God. Doesn't that seem obvious? Some of your Bibles say that, and you don't know it. I'm going to show you. I'm not going to ask you to tell me, show me your page or your title page. This redirection of the modernist effort has gathered steam since the early 1990s. In the canon debate, editors Lee McDonald and James Sanders state that a canonical book must be able to be adapted to new circumstances in life 
or it ceases to be canonical. That's their whole sum, that's the whole idea right there. If the book cannot adapt to the new circumstances or life, it shouldn't be a part of the canon anymore. In other words, God should change. How do I mean? Super easy to do the example, right? Homosexuality. What's our current circumstances? Well, the world says it's okay. Don't they? Yeah. So what do we do? Well, if the book, a book in the Bible says that it's wrong, then that book should be out. Because it can't change to our current circumstances. See this? Dr. Bart Ehrman, the chairman of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, one of the leading experts, quote-unquote, in canon criticism, said in his book, The Lost Christianities, as we will see, these confrontations were waged largely on literary grounds as members of the proto-Orthodox group produced polemical tractates in opposition to other Christian perspectives, forged sacred texts to provide authorization for their own perspectives, and collected other early writings into a sacred canon of Scripture to advance their views and counteract the views of others. It is out of these conflicts that the New Testament came into being, a collection of 27 books taken to be sacred, inspired, and authoritative. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying exactly what Dan Brown said. He's saying that there was actually a purposeful effort to come up with a group of books that matched what these initial people thought and make them the authoritative scripture and nothing else could be scripture. You understand, it's, the, it's like the absolutely antithesis to what we're saying about what the scripture is. What's the historical evidence to say that these proto-Orthodox group produced these things, they forged sacred texts, they wrote them from their own perspectives and collected them into a sacred canon of scripture? None. There is no evidence of this. None. It's kind of like the Oort cloud. Have you heard of the Oort cloud? You know, I like to throw other things in. You know what I'm saying? I bring stuff in. You're like, what the heck is the Oort cloud? I never Oort cloud. That's what's happened because of pollution. No, the Oort cloud is this place in space that we can't see because it's like a cloud, but that's where all the comets in existence come from, the Oort cloud. So what's the evidence for the Oort Cloud? There isn't any evidence for the Oort Cloud. Why is it called the Oort Cloud? Because the guy that came up with the idea was named Oort. And here's the problem. They can't explain comets. Can't explain it. What is a comet? It is a piece usually largely comprised of ice, but also rock, right? Hurtling through space. Billions of miles, supposedly, millions of miles minimally, hurtling through space, and as it hurtles through space, it loses mass. It shrinks. Stuff comes off. Are you with me? Particularly as it gets closer to other celestial bodies, suns, planets, etc., right? Things go away. It's smaller. So Halley's Comet, you're familiar with this one, right? There's many other comets, but Halley's Comet comes by the Earth every so often. It's actually just in our solar system. Halley's Comet is getting smaller. Make sense? Over time. The problem is, is you can't go back very far and there is no comet able to exist because they'd be bigger than suns. Can you see a problem? If Halley's Comet existed 10 million years ago, 
all of the planets would have collided with it. See a problem with the theory? Or with the facts? That's the facts. So what do we do? We come up with a theory that there's some mysterious place somewhere in the universe that comets shoot out of. And when they come to our solar system, well, the gravity of the sun catches it and it starts doing tracks around our solar system. What's the evidence of that? There is none. Right? So it's really easy to come up with some theory about what happened in the past, but if there's no evidence, how far should that theory go? I think it shouldn't go anywhere. How, we can waste all of mankind's abilities and effort on tracking down made-up theories forever. Why? Because we all have imaginations. And we can all come up with a theory. I have my gel theory. Most some of you know what the gel theory is. Some of you don't. The interstellar goo. But it sounds better if I just say the gel theory. And here's my gel theory. You ready for it? My gel theory is that at the outside of our solar system, there is a complete dome of interstellar goo. And on the outside of the interstellar goo are lights. Very small lights that through the goo look like stars. That, you know, just so you know, we have not ever seen a planet outside of our solar system. There is no telescope. There is nothing. All of the beautiful shapes from space are on the outside edge of the goo. How thick is the goo? I don't know. Pick a number. 20 miles? 100 miles? A million miles? Is it true? I don't know. And you don't know. You don't know. Well, yeah, but we sent these space probes out, and as they've gone left our solar which we have, they've left our solar system, Mariner, Voyager, they've left our solar system, they send back data as they're hurtling through space. You understand, none of our, our probes through everyone in this room's lifetime will ever pass by another solar system. We're way too far. In other words, I say they got in the goo. And they're in as the thicker as they go through the goo, less and less signal comes back. We think they're farther. How do we prove it? Well, I think we probably should put together a space plan that we can send people up to the edge of the solar system and check for the goo. Until then, you must accept it as reality. Could that be true? <laughs> it could be. I mean, it's possible, but the reality is there's no evidence for it, right? Now, I could probably come up with some, believe me, I could come up with some ancient drawings. Believe me, I come up with some ancient drawings where some early astronomers have shown the actual solar system itself with all the planets and the sun and everything, and then they put a big circle around it. And I could say, see, they knew there was the interstellar gel. Right there, the goo. Does that prove anything? No. It doesn't prove anything. But this is how this goes. How about the Big Bang? Is there any proof of the Big Bang? None. There is zero proof of the Big Bang. In fact, they're trying continuously to find things that they can use to explain the Big Bang. The problem is, is there's way too much evidence that shows that it couldn't have happened that way. Including comets. Comments should all be gone. 
How about how old, how old the earth is? Well, how old do you say it is? I know what you should say. How old does the world say it is? Many in the world. Not all, by the way, and not even close to all. Because the majority believe in the earth was created by God. They don't believe it's 4 billion years old, which is what evolution teaches today, 4 billion. Do you know why they say it's 4 billion years old? Oh, I'm glad you don't know, because they don't either. Because it wasn't too long ago, it was 2 billion, and then before that was a billion, then before that was 500 million. And when some of you went to school, it was 10 million. 10 million years old. How do they know the difference? They found a calendar. No. They have no idea. The problem is, is that they realize that for the, things to happen the way that they want to say that they happen, they have to have more time. And with enough time, anything could occur. That's the idea. How do you get life from rocks with interstellar rain? How many interstellar rainstorms have you witnessed? None? Yeah, that's because there's no evidence for interstellar rain. But interstellar rain rained on the earth, on the rocks. From that came chromosomes and life. That's the theory of evolution. Now, there has been some in the last 10 years, evolutionists, who are starting to say life was seeded on earth. They've started giving up on this idea that out of rain and rocks, life came. So they're starting to say that life was seeded here. Who would have seeded that life? Well, aliens. Can't be God. There is no God. It's aliens. You understand, right? So in other words, as long as we see Google on this path of our imagination and making up things and coming up with theories, we can come up with anything we want to. The only problem is, is that they're not true unless there's proof. They're not true unless there's proof. Now, what would be fair would be, okay, let's do an analysis here. We have the theory of evolution. We have the theory of creation. Right? We don't believe it's a theory. But they do. They have the theory of creation. So... What things can we find to show the difference between the two? And not taint them. Well, that's going to be a problem. Because everybody who looks at that is going to be biased, right? They're going to be biased. So I would start with this. This is an easy one. How old is the oldest desert on the planet Earth? Roughly 4,500 years, the Sahara Desert. In other words, if the Sahara Desert had existed for 10,000 years, the entire continent of Africa would be in sand. It's only 4,500 years old. It has not gone all the way across Africa. So what does that fit better? Creation or evolution? Hmm. How about what's the rate of salinity in the ocean? How quickly is it increasing? If we go backwards at the current rate of salinity in the ocean, where do we end up? Interesting, 4,500 years. The ocean's getting saltier. Why? The runoff. How about erosion? At the rate of current erosion, you know, everything's eroding, right? Mount Everest is not as tall as it used to be. Everything's eroding. At the current rate of erosion, how long would it take for the mountains to disappear? Well, about 10 million years. Now, wait a minute. How tall were they in the beginning? That would be beyond our atmosphere, touching the moon. Which one does that tend to? How about the distance from the Earth to the Moon? It is increasing. The Moon is moving further away. Further away. 
all the time, measurable. It's not changing. It's the same rate since they began measuring it. So, what if you go back a million years? The moon would be touching the earth. They would be destroyed. Half the distance would have cataclysmically destroyed the earth through earthquakes and shifting plates. There would be no more earth. I mean broken apart. Who's the tentor? But see, you're not going to learn about those things in the debate about evolution versus creation. Why? Because they make evolution look really stupid. And I think the Oort cloud does too. <laughs> but that's what they've come up with. So we talk about canonical criticism or canon criticism. And they say, they suggest that here's what happened with no evidence. And this is the basis for their entire movement. Can you see a problem there? There's a huge problem. There's a huge problem. What was Paul's response to corruptions of the gospel? Galatians 1, 6-9. I'll read that to you. You can turn to it if you want to. Galatians 1, 6-9. This is the very beginning of the book of Galatians. Here's what Paul said. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. So he's shocked that they moved from Christ unto another gospel which is not another, but there is some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, say, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. So Paul's pronouncement on those who would preach a different gospel, and by the way, you notice there in the second verse, it's verse 7, what he's saying is, is that he's not saying it's an entirely different gospel. It's just a slightly different gospel. Let that person be accursed. That's what Paul says. That's how you deal with it. We must stand firm in our conviction and confident in our faith that the Bible we hold and use is the canon of Scripture that God inspired and wants his church to possess. Okay, paragraph three. Paragraph three. Hopefully you've read, look, what did I tell you last week for assignment? Paragraph four and five. If you hadn't read four, five. Good. So we're not ahead of your homework here. I don't want you, I want you, I'm trying to keep you up. Okay, here we go. The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon or rule of the scripture, and therefore are of no authority to the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of other than, I'm sorry, of use of than other human writings. In other words, the canon is not inspired, it's not part of the Word of God, it's just human writings. So, it doesn't say that all the copies of the Apocrypha should be burned, right? It doesn't say, you know, don't read them or you're going to hell. It doesn't say anything like that. It just says that they're just human writings. This is the only exception that the Confession makes because there were no other books that were possibly considered part of the canon. It was only the Apocrypha, which had been approved by the Roman Catholic Church as Deuterocanon. That was it. So our confession addresses those books, the Apocryphal books. Now, without going too far down, you know, I'm going to steal my own thunder directly right now if I don't just turn a slide. Okay. 
All right. The Apocrypha, this is exactly what I was going to say. The Apocrypha is from the intertestamental period. What is the intertestamental? It's between the Old and the New Testaments, that period of time between Malachi and Christ, or John, or the angel coming to Mary. Between that time is considered the intertestamental period. It was never considered canon by the church, even by the Roman Catholic Church until the Council of Trent. None of the Apocrypha claimed to be inspired. None of them. We see this in other books. This is the word of God to you. God says, we see this in other books in the New Testament. None of the Apocrypha books say that. We do see that in the Old Testament many times. None of the, none of the Apocrypha say that. Some even confirming that the line of the prophets had come to an end. There are even books, Maccabees is one of them, that says that the line of prophets had ended. Who were the prophets? They were the messengers of God. God's word came to us through the prophets. Some of the apocryphal books say that that ended. So why would we then consider them to be part of the scripture? The authors didn't say they were. The books themselves don't say they were. See a problem there? This is one of the proofs that the Septuagint was not used by the Jews and did not exist at the time of Christ. Now we'll talk about the Septuagint later. But this is a problem. The Septuagint did not appear until Origen's Hexlopa. We're going to talk about that. Origen's Hexlopa, which he wrote for Constantine. There was a column in there which he labeled Septuagint, and he put what he put in that column. Now that also, by the way, included the works of the Apocrypha. The suggestion today is the Septuagint was written in 200 to 250 B.C. at the request of an Egyptian pharaoh. This pharaoh asked for representatives from the 12 tribes of Israel to translate the works of the Old Testament into Greek so that he could learn from them. Red light should be going on all over your head right now about that. Number one, the Jews were commanded not to return to Israel. Does anyone remember Deuteronomy? God commands them never to return to Egypt. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Christ returned to Egypt. You're right. We're not going to go down that path yet. But the Jews did not live in Egypt during this period, the intertestamental period. They didn't live there. Second, the qualification was, so apparently, some key questions that he asked the representatives, and if they answered them right, then he would allow them to be on the council that wrote this. What was the council comprised of, according to the story of the Septuagint? Seventy-two scholars. Seventy-two scholars. Why is it 72? Six from each tribe. What's it called? The Septuagint. What does Septuagint mean? Seventy. Were two guys absent that day? What happened? It's a good question. Third problem. The Egyptians didn't speak Greek. In fact, the Pharaoh at the time had actually made a law that said that if you were in his presence, you could not speak in Greek. Why? He didn't like the Romans. Didn't like the Greeks. He kind of had a problem. Didn't want it. Where's the earlier copies of the Septuagint? Don't exist. No fragments, no pieces, nothing. Nothing. But the bigger problem is, is that 200 to 250 B.C. was before half the works of the Apocrypha were written. 
Half of them weren't written yet. And yet they're in the Septuagint. Do you see a problem? It just happens to be that the Septuagint does not agree with the Masoretic text. What's the Masoretic text? That was the text that the Jews preserved the scripture in. The Masoretic text. The Septuagint doesn't agree. A whole bunch of places doesn't agree. So what's right? Is it the Septuagint or is it the Masoretic text that was retained by the Jews? The Jews, by the way, remember I just talked about this last week, that in 90 AD the rabbis gathered to consider what was actually part of the canon. They never even considered any of the books of the Apocrypha. There was no way that they would consider the Septuagint, which included the Apocrypha. Couldn't have done it. This is a problem. Where'd the Septuagint come from? Where'd the York Club come from? It's a theory. Based on what? Origen's text. Who was Origen? Well, probably not Satan, but he was close. We'll see it. Let's look at a few verses. Actually, I'll just refer to these because these were footnotes for this paragraph. Luke 24, 27, and 44, and Romans 3, 2. All right, paragraph 4. See how fast we went through that paragraph? It was really quick. Paragraph 4. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed. You see how important this is. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. So this flies right in the face of what those statements were that I read earlier, doesn't it? That the scripture isn't the word of God until it's real to you? It's not up to you. That the scripture isn't the word of God until the church accepts it? That's not. Or it's not the word of God unless it adapts to modern circumstances? <laughs> 1689. Addressed. That issue. But it's the word of God because it's the word of God. Not because you accept it or don't accept it. Not because we accept it or don't accept it. It's still truth. All right. So the authority of the scriptures is divine from God. It is not, as they suggested in the previous several slides there, it is not, be, is not based on, the authority of the scripture is not based on Constantine. It's not based on some group of pro-Orthodox individuals who got together and decided what they wanted to make into a Bible. They have absolute authority, the scriptures do, through its verbal, plenary inspiration, which is direct supernatural influence of the Spirit on the men who were his instruments. It is completely inerrant. Now you say, well, I heard there's a lot of mistakes in the Bible. I mean, I got friends I talk to who's, you know, they won't listen to me because they say, you know, the Bible's full of mistakes. All right. So that's really easy. It's easy in two ways. The first way will end the conversation. Okay, so I'm not suggesting that you take this approach. But it is effective. The first way is, really, I'm very interested in the Bible. That's the gracious part. I'm very interested in the Bible. I'd really appreciate it if you'd show me the mistakes. And guess what? They don't know what any of the mistakes are. They've only heard it said. They can't show you the mistakes. I've never had someone show me a mistake. They can't show me. So that can end the conversation real quick. Although I have had a few that I've asked that question to who have then said, well, I don't really know any of them. Well, then how do you know it's true? 
it can lead to a more conversation. The second way, which is also very easy, is that they were completely inerrant when they were written by the men who wrote them in the original autograph. <coughs> is it possible some very minor things could have gotten messed up through the translation process over 2,000 years? Yes. Yes. You ever notice in the New Testament that you see some spellings of Isaiah, for instance, that are not the same as the Old Testament? Looks like easiest. See this? Even in the Old Testament, you see some spellings of things that are different from one book to another, right? And we see some references in a few places where people will say, oh, here's a mistake. I'm trying to think what the passages are. I can't remember off the top of my head. But you'll see David had so many horsemen. And then in another book, David had so many chariots and they're different numbers. Except David had so many horsemen and David had so many chariots is not apples to apples. A chariot is not a horseman. There's more horsemen because there's more than one in a chariot. Right? But you see this. It's the original autograph. The autograph is the, what was actually hand penned by the initial author in the beginning. Had to be inherent. Why? It was God's word. It was God's word. So what happened over time? Could there have been a mistake? There could be. Now, we're not talking about purposeful mistakes, like where things are cut out on purpose because they don't agree with your theological views. Hello, Origen. <coughs> the Bible never criticizes itself. In other words, the Bible never questions itself. It never questions other books. It is self-authenticating. In other words, the Bible itself says it's the Word of God. Over and over and over again we see this. It is not the Word of God because it's real to us, or man says so, it's the word of God because God says so, right? That's the summary. So here is the footnotes for that particular paragraph. We are going to expound here. 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21, 2 Timothy 3:16, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, and 1 John 5, 9. All verses basically where the scripture is saying that it's the word of God and what you should use the word of God for. That's what these verses are. All right. So... This was in itself, and this is the initial uh, footnote verses of the confession. So let's expand this a little bit. So here is the evidence for the authority of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is sacred and holy. They are God's writings. 2 Timothy 3.15 says this. I'll tell you what, as you look at that, I'm going to read you some of these verses. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This is Paul writing to Timothy. And he's saying to him, since you were young, you knew the Holy Scriptures. What did he know? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? No. He knew the Old Testament. You with me on this? The Holy Scriptures. They are the oracles of God. What is an oracle? An oracle designates a divine utterance. Romans 3, 2. Much every way, chiefly because un that unto them they were committed to the, the oracles of God. Acts 7.38, this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spoke to him in the Mount Sinai with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Who's that talking about? Moses. Hebrews 5.12, for when, the, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. We see references to the scripture calling itself the oracles of God. God is the ultimate determinative speaker and author of the Old Testament. 
I'm not going to read every passage on every one, but we could keep going. I'll read a few. Acts 2, 16 and 17, Acts 4, 24 to 25, and Matthew 13, 35. Phrases God says and Scripture says are equivalent. Romans 9, 17, Galatians 3, 8, Matthew 19, 4 to 5. Galatians 3.8, in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. And then here's Christ speaking in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5, and he answered and said unto them, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Who is he quoting? He's quoting the scriptures. Christ. Scriptures are written with the distant future in mind. We see this in Romans 15.4 and 1 Corinthians 10.11. Scriptures are also, scripture is also authoritative in detail. Why is that important? Well, because God is the author, so it all counts. In other words, because there's some little tidbit in there that's not the main focus of the passage, but some detail that's listed there, it matters. Why? God wrote it. Didn't have to include it. Now, I'm going to try to cut some slack here for myself and for Paul and Brantz. We don't know it all. <laughs> How was that? Was that good? <laughs> we, we don't know it all. So you say, why, why did he include in here that he had a long robe instead of a robe? We may not know that, right? Because why? Well, the Spirit hasn't illuminated us to that. But it is there for a reason. Why? Because God wrote it. Do we see everything described the same in Scriptures? Are you with me on that? In other words, every time that something is written in Scriptures, is it written with the same level of description and adjectives? No, very different. Like, for, for instance, you think about the Gospels. That's, the, that's probably the biggest indicator, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all wrote from different perspectives, right? Who was Matthew? What was his job before he became a disciple? Tax collector. How about Luke? Now, was Luke an apostle? He was not. But what was his profession? So you said it. He was a physician. So did you ever notice that when you read the account of the crucifixion in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Luke goes into detail about the torture, about flesh being ripped, right? He talks about details, not the same way in the other books. Is there some importance? I mean, obviously, he's a physician, he's inspired He's going to write in a detailed way about what he knows. And yet John, who writes Revelation and describes these different things that he sees, right, does not write like Luke, does he? He's not Luke. He writes differently. Now, do you think that if God wanted us to have more details about the way the blood flowed through the veins of the angels, 
that he would have John write it? No, he would have Luke write it. He didn't want need think that we needed to know that, so he had John write it. Well, for this, but not the only reason. You know, it's for whatever reason God wanted. But my point is, is that he used an author that was going to write in a certain way to write what he wanted written. The details matter. As God put them in His Word, we don't have the explanation for all the details. Someone else may, right? But we all can't know all the details. Arguments have been built on the very form of a single word, right? What's the what's the one I quote all the time? Seeded seeds, right? That's a, that's a quote on a single letter. But Christ actually makes an argument on an apostrophe. A tittle. Christ makes the argument on a tittle. You see that in Matthew twenty two thirty two, Luke sixteen seventeen, Matthew twenty two forty one to forty six, John ten thirty five, and Galatians three sixteen. Since it is divine, it is the transcript of a divine decree. A divine necessity demands its fulfillment. So, a lot of verses here. Just trying to think if I want to read some of these. All right, let's just read the first one. Acts 1, 16. Men and brethren, the scripture must needs be have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. This is Peter preaching, and he is saying how the scriptures that God wrote, inspired through David, was writing about what Judas was going to do. Where do we see that? In the Psalms. But the point is, is that he's saying that because God said it, it had to happen. He says, must needs have been fulfilled. It had to happen. Why? Because God said it. He's God. It's going to happen. And we see this also in 2 Peter 1, 19, I'm sorry, Acts 2, 24-36, Acts 13, 34-35, John 19, 34-36, Luke 22:37, Matthew 26, 54, and John 13, 8. If you're listening to this in sermon audio, I'm sorry, you're going to have to stop and go back and play that through again to hear all those verses. All right. The Old Testament is God-breathed, the product of direct, divine origination and determination, permanent and unbreakable in its every assertion, and as written is perfectly authoritative. And we see this in 2 Timothy 3, 16. 2 Peter 1, 19 and 21. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. John 10, 34 to 36. And Matthew 4, 1 through 11. All New Testament passages talking about the validity of the Old Testament as being God's Word. Okay. Last. Implications. I'm sorry. No, we're starting a new one here. So we want to stop right there. This is evidence for the authority of the Old Testament. So, here was evidence for the authority of the Old Testament. I'm sorry. Now we're going to evidence for the authority of the New Testament. Right? So we'll pause there. We'll pick this back up next week, and we'll talk about the authority. So you can see, when we went through the evidence for the authority of the Old Testament, that we used New Testament verses. Right? There's a, a plethora of statements in the Old Testament that God said. This is the word of God. God told me to tell you. That's a paraphrase of the prophets. Right? Hear the word of the Lord. So we see that. But we also see in the New Testament lots of references to the Old Testament being the very word of God. 
And notice, by the way, none of these passages say the Old Testament is the word of God as it was written by Moses. In other words, they don't go to the autograph as saying that's the only word of God. The references to the scriptures that they had, the scriptures they were using, the scrolls that they had, that was the word of God. That's what the New Testament is talking about. And no matter what synagogue you went to, they were going to have scrolls of the word of God. And that's what they're referring to. That's what Christ is referring to. You never see him refer to anything otherwise. Just the word of God. Let's close in a word of prayer.